Well, good morning. It's good to be back here with all of you. I enjoyed some uh, leadership development. I enjoyed some lots and lots and lots of one-on-one situations um, in the last month, but it is so good to get to bring forth the Word of God with you today. Now, we're in a new series called Sifted, and Mike shared last week kind of Jesus' view on sifting. And Mike also shared his own examples of sifting, especially the one of his challenge of having to move this fall. And he ended with this charge for us to expect sifting because Jesus encountered it, because Jesus promised to be with us in it, and because he would bring us through. And so, uh, Mike, if you're going to listen online, thanks. Now, onward. Do you ever wish that you were someone else? Okay, maybe not wishing you were someone else, but do you ever wish you were a better version of yourself? Okay, there's a few courageous people out there. All right, um, maybe stronger, wiser, uh, more courageous. Uh, I, I'm sure there are some of us that would like to change things on the outside, but I know there are plenty of us that would really, really like to change some things on the inside. I know I would. I would really like to be more extroverted. Just kidding. Uh, I, I do wish I were more organized. A lot more organized. Uh, I, I really wish I could run an executive meeting more efficiently. And, and I wish I had more courage. And the courage one, that, that totally snuck up on me. I did not see courage needing to be in my top three of things that I would love to improve about myself. But then, but then I met this lady named Pranithia Timothy. And Pranithia spoke at the Willow Creek Leadership Summit last week. I had the privilege of attending via satellite on Thursday and Friday. And uh, this woman overflows with courage. And I'll let her boss tell you. I'm Gary Haugen, president of International Justice Mission, an organization leading the charge to bring rescue to victims of violent oppression in our world. And I'm thrilled to get to introduce an authentic hero of mine, Pranitha Timothy. Pranitha is a global leader in the fight against modern-day slavery. Pranitha serves as the director of aftercare with IJM in Chennai, India. And she has led her team to bring rescue and restoration to about 4,000 men, women, and children who were once held in slavery. Pranitha is actually changing the course of history in her country through her leadership, and she has a lot to teach us. First of all, about courage, because she has led her teams in life-threatening situations face-to-face against dangerous criminals who are trying to hurt you. Secondly, she can teach us about perseverance, because she knows how to lead her team in a hard work that takes a long time. And finally, about hope, because her leadership has borne authentic miracles. So that's Pranitha. And what I wanted to know was, how did Pranitha become such a courageous leader? And I think to answer that question... We have to go back. I mean, Pranitha was, was born and raised in India in a tiny, tiny rural village where the poor only knew one life they would have, and that would be a life of oppression. 
I mean, they had a choice, so to speak. They could either choose to um, work tirelessly in the fields for cruel, cruel landowners, or they could starve. So that was her choice. Um, but Pranitha was a daughter to missionaries, so I thought, well, maybe that's, maybe that's why she's so courageous. You know, her parents were these faith-filled, God-filled people, uh, but if you thought that, then you'd be hugely mistaken. Pranitha swore she would never, ever become a Christian. She hated Christ because her parents were missionaries, and they sent her to a boarding school all through school. She resented the fact that she was separated from her parents. And her nickname in college was Cece, like C-C, cold and calculated. I mean, this woman had no emotions. She had no morality. She was self-destructive through addiction. She was eventually expelled from college because of her behaviors. She said, in her own words, she reached a place where nothing good could come out of her. Well, that's not a story of courage. So, how did she become the woman that that Gary Haugen just described? And I think when when we understand that, we also discover what God's purpose is in sifting and we discover how she became this person. And so to do that, we need to travel back through time and, uh, and hear from one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. It's better than the time machine music. Well, I remember sitting around with Jesus so many times. Uh, In fact, most of my memories that flood back to me when I think about Jesus were near the water, on the water, or in the water, Um, but they were always around water. And I have to go back to this one time around water. It It was this place called Caesarea Philippi. I loved Caesarea Philippi because it was kind of out of the way of our normal ministry routes. And, and Caesarea Philippi had this fountain, this spring that flowed up and into the Jordan River, and it was just peaceful. And, uh, well, the bad part was they worshipped lots of other gods there, but there was this sense of life that just flowed from the land. And, and as we were sitting around on the rocks by this fountain, Jesus kind of just starts asking us questions. And he says, Who do the crowd say I am? Now, I just thought this was kind of another round of Jewish interrogation through teaching through interrogation. I mean, teaching through questions. So, so we just kind of, you know, started answering this question. Well, you know, some of us think that you're Elijah, come back from heaven. And another person said, no, no, no. Like, they think you're John the Baptist back from the grave. And somebody else said, no, like one of the prophets that's come back again to speak to us about Israel. And he listened and he kind of went back and forth and then he turned And he looked right at me. And he said directly to all of us, but who do you say that I am? And when he said that, I mean, it was kind of like an explosion went off in my mind. Imagine pouring gasoline on this huge, um, huge set of dry wood and it just 
went off like a spark. That's what flooded my mind. Every word that he'd ever said, every Bible verse I'd ever heard, they all came crashing together in this one moment. And I just said, I don't even know where it comes from. I just said, you are the Christ. You are God's Messiah. You are the son of the living God. I don't know where it came from. Other than that huge explosion in my head and Jesus confirmed it, he said, you're right, Peter, this did not come from your own mind. You didn't cleverly put together all the evidence. God himself told you that I am God's Messiah. <laughs> that was a good day. And then, and then he named me in front of all the other disciples. Sure, he called me this once or twice before, but he stopped and he said, you're right, Simon. This came from God. But I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. It was a good day. It was a defining moment for me. A defining moment. I mean, this truth that Jesus was the Messiah would be this foundation where the fountain of this new thing that he was doing would spring forth. And he said it, and the way that he said it led me to believe that, that I would be involved in it. That I was important to this work. And so, so I was kind of honored, but I was excited to see what he was going to do. And that's why I was so distressed when immediately after this, he starts talking about his coming um, persecution and then execution. I mean, it didn't make any sense. And so I just did what, what I do best. I just started talking before I thought, because I thought about what everyone else was thinking and feeling. And that was, what? No, Jesus, that is not going to happen. And I took him aside and I said, no, 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 you're the Messiah. This isn't going to work. And he immediately, in front of my, my friends and my brother, he said, um, you're an obstacle. You're in the way. You're an enemy that God, that not God is using, that Satan is using. Same day. Not my best moment. And I was just crushed. I was crushed by his words. I didn't, I didn't really know what he meant. Because this, this really wasn't supposed to be how it was going to go. And, and there were so many things I didn't understand. See, one day he took us up on this mountain, just me and the sons of Zebedee, the brothers, James and John. And when he was there, it was, it was as if like the heavens broke open, kind of like at his baptism. The heavens broke open and... And it was literally like a, a fog had lifted and Jesus shone brightly. Um, they called it the transfiguration where, where we saw Jesus for who he totally was. I mean, I, I said, Jesus, this is awesome. I mean, the, there's this vision of Moses and Elijah was there. I said, this is good. And he said, you can't tell anybody about this. But I remembered that day and said, that day is coming. Somehow, the world is going to know who Jesus really is, and I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there when he does. I, I will be with him, and this is, this is what's going to happen. In fact, when that day comes and he explains and he shows everyone his transfiguration, 
The world will see who he is. That he is the one true king. That he is the Lord of lords. In fact, I mean, that the, 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 even the weight of his voice would make anyone cower to their knees. The nations, the armies, the rulers, I mean, even the Roman Empire would be able to do nothing at his name. The high priests, they would understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that they would rise up and support him. In fact, not just the high priest, but the entire nation of Israel would rise up. We would rise up. We would be restored. We, God would gather around us and he would bring us and the world would know this is God walking among us. In fact, in fact, Jesus in his power Jesus in his glory, the very awe of his presence would, would sweep aside any Roman army that would seek to, to try and get in front of us as we march to Rome, to the capital city. That's where we had to be going. The, the center of the world was in Rome. The Roman Empire had, had oppressed us for hundreds of years now. We were going to Rome. And he would stand before the Roman Empire, the Senate. And their money and their position and their power and and their speeches would be nothing. Nothing compared to him, the one true king. Everyone would understand. Everything would be revealed. I mean, it would be undeniable this was going to be how it would happen. They would shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. And they would, they would anoint him king over all the earth. This was going to be how it was going to go down. We were going to Rome. Nothing else would make sense. Why wouldn't we do it that way? In fact, it was so close. I could taste it. It was so close. It was almost like the earth had stopped, like the earth was holding its breath in anticipation that Jesus would be the new king, that Jesus would be the new Lord, that Jesus would be Caesar. Yeah, nothing else made sense. So when he talked about his death and he talked about his persecution, I did not know what was happening and as, as the Caesar, he would rule with justice. He would rule with wisdom. He would rule with the love that we had seen. The little emperors, they would just cower. They couldn't even say his name. And he would be divine, not just in title or ideal, but in total reality. God's chosen people would once again be restored to the land that God had promised through Abraham and finally given to us through King David. It would finally come to pass. I was ready. I was willing. 
and I would be there. The day of the Lord that the prophets had talked about, yes, I would be there. We would be there, and Jesus would rule. We would reign and rule by his side. Maybe I would even get to sit in one of the two seats of power to his left or to his right. Maybe he called me for just a time as this. And then he told us to make preparations for the Passover meal. And that's fine. We, we did, and it was Passover. And, and he said we'd find things um, in a particular way, and we did. And we went to make the preparations. But, but something wasn't right. Not with the food, not with the bread. Something wasn't right with Jesus. He was acting strange. I mean, Passover is a big deal for us. We celebrate Passover. We love Passover. Passover is, is like Christmas to you. But, but Jesus wasn't acting like this was a time of triumph. He was acting like he was preparing to say goodbye. And then he talked about so many things, most of which we didn't understand. He talked about suffering. And he talked about death. He talked about kings and kingdoms. He talked about God's perfect plan. And he talked about our place in this coming kingdom. But then he talked about betrayal. He said one of us would betray him. And that's when the rest of the disciples and I got into a little argument, I guess you could say, about who was going to be the greatest because one of us wanted to sit in one of those two seats of power, and so we started arguing about who would sit in those two seats of power, who would be the greatest, who would be those advisors on his left or on his right that would, would govern, govern the land, and surely I would be one of them. I mean, I was the first one to declare that he was the Messiah. I was the one that said yes. I was the one that spoke first, although you might make some other things about that. I was the one. I had to be the one. Maybe John. Probably not Judas. We don't like him. But I, I had to be. And as we were shouting, and as voices got louder and louder, I heard my name. Not my new name. Not my powerful name. My old name. Twice. From Jesus. Simon. Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail, but when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. What? What do you mean, when I turn back? You think I'm going to leave you, Jesus? There's no way I'm going to leave you. Prison, death, whatever. I will never leave you. And he said, oh, Simon, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. I'm not going to fail him. Certainly not going to deny him. Sure, he's Jesus. Sure, he's been right 17,000 times before this, but surely not this. No. We went back to our eating and our drinking and our bread and our wine. 
And then we walked out to the garden where we'd spent many nights that week going for prayer. And he talked to us kind of the way he talked to us a few months before that, several months before that, about not needing a purse and not needing a sword and not needing an extra cloak, that we could just go and trust God. And this time he says, no, no, no. This time take a purse, take a sword, take an extra cloak, be ready. And so when we walked out, there were two swords. I grabbed one, I put it on my belt. I said, just in case. And then as he was teaching in this garden, Judas. Judas came with these soldiers and he comes up to Rabbi and he kissed him and the guard stepped forward and it was like everything froze. This is not how it's supposed to happen. I just reacted kind of like I always do. I pulled out the sword and without even thinking, I just turned around and tried to get in between Jesus and the soldier and I struck his helmet and I cut off his ear and blood was shed. I fell down. My heart was pounding out of my chest. I saw blood dripping down. I did not know what was happening. And in that moment, Jesus said, stop. Stop. And the crack of his voice silenced everybody. Picked up this piece of flesh and he put it on the soldier and it was healed. And he said, put away your sword. Could I not call down thousands of angels? This must be done. I did not. I didn't. Did I misunderstand him? What was going on? It, it was like a bad dream. It was no, it was like a nightmare. And they took him away. And it's it's late. It's almost midnight. And they bring him to the high priest's house. And and I follow at a distance with John and and we're sitting out in the courtyard and it's cold and, and we, can't, we can see in the house and they're interrogating Jesus and we can't quite make out the words. They're, we're not sure what's going on and we're trying to warm ourselves by this fire, trying to be inconspicuous. And this, this one servant girl, she, she looked at me, kind of looked up and she motioned to one of her friends and she's like, he, he was with him. He'd know what was going on because they were all speculating about what would happen to Jesus. Like, would he be fined or would he be jailed or would he be beaten? Like, what would happen to him? And she, no, 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 he, he was with him. What? No, girl, you don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't, I wasn't with him. I got myself by the fire. I I, I looked, they, they kind of looked suspiciously at me and I just kept my head down and the moment passed and, and it was fine. A little later, as Jesus was being moved from the high priest to the, to the Sanhedrin, to our Jewish ruling council, another person said, no, 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 this guy, he, he had to be with him. No, no, I just, I want to find out what's going to happen. We went on and, and he entered the, the ruling council. And, and again, we could get just close enough to, to hear out mumbles but not understand the words. And more people were gathering because this was kind of getting around the village that something was going down this night. It was early now in the early cracks of the morning. I didn't even know what time it was. And we were there and I tried to pull my hood up, tried to stay warm by this fire. And somebody new came up. They walked around me and 
And the crowd had gotten a little larger and gotten a little crowd, louder. And, and they said, no, no, this guy, he's Galilean. He must be one of them. Let's find out from him. Maybe he knows. No! Hell no. No, it's not me. And then Jesus looked right at me. And the lines on his face were just etched with sadness. And his eye was already bruising from being struck. And then the rooster. Oh, the rooster. Not once. Not twice. Three times. I just, I ran. I just ran and ran until I couldn't run anymore. And I ran in agony and I ran with tears. And I found this hidden corner in, in the shadows and I slumped down in it. And the tears just started coming. It wasn't supposed to go down this way. I heard the words, they were pounding in my head and they were pounding in my heart. These words were just unbearable. Words of Satan and sifting and strength. Words that made me feel like I was being torn into pieces. Sifted like wheat. Separating me in ways that I couldn't possibly survive. I was crushed. I felt like chaff. Separated from the wheat, totally useless. Dead. Just felt dead. It was a nightmare. Gary Haugen said, uh, Gary Haugen was the guy in the video, the president of International Justice Mission. He said it this way. He said, leaders lead out of who they are on the inside. So gloriously or tragically, you and I are going to lead from where we are on the inside. And God knows this, right? I mean, he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He's always present. He knows that we're going to lead from this place on the inside. And the Bible is just so clear on why God allows sifting. To sift means to crush. It means to separate and it means to shake up, to get the good and the valuable from the dead and the useless. And that's where Peter was. And that's where Pranitha was. In this bitter place towards her parents and in this hatred towards Christ and in the anger towards herself, Pranitha was crushed. Her words. I know that the restoration of people is not easy. I realized in my brokenness, my only hope was the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. 
I knew that I needed his power to overcome the darkness. And that was the only thing. And that was the, that was the everything that I needed was his power and his forgiveness to overcome this dark place. And finally, she said, I embraced it. Weeks later, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. A brain tumor that they could operate on, but that caused 60% of her nerve damage in this area right here. She lost her voice. Even after the surgery, she was not able to speak. She couldn't cry out, but when she couldn't speak, she remembered the words of one chapel speaker after she said yes to Jesus. This chapel speaker spoke on Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42 talks about this servant of the Lord who does not shout, who does not cry out, but who is a voice for the voiceless. And then she knew. From this freedom in this restoration place, this is what God would call her to. This is where she would work faithlessly. And two years later, God gave her this feeble little voice, a little bit of a slur, her mouth somewhat coming back into place. But this feeble little voice was hugely powerful when put to use for God. And she, she has become the voice for the voiceless. She has gone on 50, over 50 rescue missions. She has saved 4,000 men, women, and children from literal slavery. This is that woman of courage, and this is how she got out of it. In fact, she said the restoring of her voice was not the miracle. I mean, sure, it was a miracle, but it wasn't the greatest miracle. In fact, being literally protected and saved by God in miraculous ways with certain deaths, she told story after story of, of mafia-like people who would surround their camp so that the people would be killed rather than get freedom and how God would miraculously save them time and time again. She said that was not the miracle. She said the miracle was that her heart was changed, that her heart was restored. In the words of Ezekiel, that her heart of stone, ceasy, cold, and calculated, became this heart of flesh, soft, palatable, moldable, a heart that could care, a heart that could love, a heart that could feel emotion and have compassion and bring restoration. She said, my calling is merely a response to the freedom that I have in Jesus. To sift is to crush, to separate, and to shake up. To get the good and the valuable from the useless and the dead. And isn't it possible that God knew this? Isn't it possible that God saw Pernitha in her hatred and in her anger with her parents that are missionaries? And isn't it possible that God said, oh, I have a plan for you. Not in a, let's put it on our wall or a bumper sticker, but in a, in a divine, omniscient, sovereign way. Pernitha, I have a plan for you. 
and where you're at right now, there's too much useless there. There's too much dead there. But oh, I see the value. I see the usefulness. Oh, if we could just separate those out. Pranitha, I love you so much that I'm going to take you through that. And he did. Isn't it possible that while Peter was was with Jesus for three years by his side, training at his feet, God allowed Peter to go through his own process of sifting to produce what he intended, the man that God intended to bring these even greater purposes through. He needed a disciple that would lead him and lead others, not from a position of ambition or a position of power, but from a position of weakness, where God's power and God's strength would come through. I think he needed a man who would be stronger, broken. To sift is to crush and break up. Not because God is malicious, not because he's vindictive, but because he knows that there's usefulness and there's some yuck. And God, in his love and in his sovereignty, I believe that he allows us to do this. Sure, in our passage, Satan asks to separate Peter as wheat. But in other passages of scripture, Jesus says, I am the one who's bringing the fork. I am the one who's separating. I'm doing that work. And isn't it just like Satan to try and twist something that God created as good? Even sifting. And he does. And just like Peter and Pranitha, you and I, if you haven't already, you and I will go through periods of sifting. Not because God is unpleased with us, but because he is pleased with us. Because he sees the good the godly, and the useful. And this, this stuff gets in the way. Our spiritual enemy wants, to, wants us to think when we go through that, that we're the chaff, that we're the dead, and we're the useless. If you ever hear words like that, I truly believe those are not from Jesus. They are from our spiritual enemy who wants to accuse us of something that we don't need to to take. So if you feel useless or you feel dead, that is not from God. It's precisely in those moments that our Savior Jesus wants us to know, wants us to lean in, wants us to believe that if we put our faith in him, he already sees us useful. He already sees us valuable, and he wants to get us all the way there. Have you been through a sifted moment? Are you in a sifting moment? Took almost three years to start this, this thing that we call restoration, because God had to take me through some sifting moments. We can talk about it another time. 
And if you're in one or you have been in one, if you have just enough perspective to look out, was your faith strengthened or was it weakened? And either way, it seems like communion should be a natural response to this. And if you're in this place of strengthened, then praise God for that. Thank him for the fact that he sees you so worthy that he pulls you into this place of usefulness. And if you've been weakened and you're over here and you're feeling like you've let him down again, he's not surprised. And it's not about us. It's about him. He's always perpetually faithful all the time, 100%. He did not ever have a moment of unfaithfulness. His faithfulness for our faithlessness. That's the beauty. That's the message. That's what he offers at communion. So it's the story that Leah read right out of Luke where Jesus is with his disciples and he's feasting with them and he pauses and he takes bread and he says, this bread, this bread is my body broken for you. When you do this, remember me and all of you take and eat. And if you're in a place of broken, if you're in a place of weakness, if you're in a place where you are doubting and you just don't think that you know if you can get out, take the bread. He's been broken for you. And he's been restored for you. And he will bring you to a place of restoration. In the same way, Luke tells us that Jesus took the cup and he poured the wine in. And he said, this cup that has been poured out for you, this cup is the new symbol of the new covenant sealed in my blood. Take and drink every one of you. And when you do, Remember me. And if you're in a place of value, if you're in a place where, where things are going well, where you're in a place where you've been through the sifting process and you see the place of goodness and the place of glory and the place of, of restoration, then say thank you. But whether you come in weakness or you come in thanksgiving, come, join us. You don't have to be a member of Restoration Covenant Church. You just have to be someone who who has or will call in the name of Jesus. Not as the king to rule with oppression and strength, but as the king to rule in peace and weakness and meekness. If you call on Jesus, I promise you, he will change your life. It may not get easier, but it will be unbelievably different. If you'd like a bit more time to pray, we encourage you to use the kneeling station in the back. If you would like to walk through, you may use this station that will be right here. And we celebrate communion today by intinction, which is a fancy word for saying you take the little piece of bread, you dip it in the cup, and then you eat it. Um, We don't usually go in order, so as the Spirit leads you to come, You may come.